0: Look for the age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 273, Fishdam Ford and Blackstock's Farm. Uh, Last week, we left the British Army in South Carolina. They'd pulled out of North Carolina after a hostile reception there and the defeated King's Mountain, and the British spent most of the fall battling malaria and dealing with small parties of partisans who continued to harass them. I spent the last episode mostly recounting how Colonel Francis Marion had been causing troubles for the British. This week I wanted to mention Thomas Sumter's actions as well. While Colonel Marion had led smaller groups... General Sumter had been able to raise larger armies to challenge British control of the Carolinas. Sumter had managed to miss the Battle of Kings Mountain because he was away from his army meeting with South Carolina Governor John Rutledge to confirm that he had the right to command. Days before Kings Mountain, Rutledge had given a commission to a Virginia colonel named James Williams. It was the Williams Commission that forced Sumter to visit Rutledge to confirm Rutledge's right to command the army. Sumter did not actually have a formal commission, so Rutledge granted him one, but it meant Sumter was absent at King's Mountain, and as far as he was concerned, it was probably just as well that he missed the battle as his rival, James Williams, was killed there. Sumter had caught up with his army shortly after the victory at King's Mountain but by that time, many of the men had begun to return home. Sumter did convince some of them to stay. The victory also encouraged more men to join the fight. By November of 1780, Sumter had a command of over 500 militia. Now, the British became aware of Sumter's position along the Broad River at a place known as Moore's Mill, about 25 miles from the main British camp at Winsboro. Normally, the British commander Cornwallis would assign the mission of tracking down and destroying these Americans to British Colonel Bannister Tarleton. But in early November, Tarleton was chasing down Francis Marion. Instead, General Cornwallis assigned command of the attack to Major James Wemyss. I've mentioned Weemus before. He was a Scottish officer in the regular army and had a long combat history by this time. He had a reputation similar to Tarleton's as far as brutality. He believed in hard-charging the enemy and treating the locals rather harshly. He'd spent much of the fall burning plantations and hanging traders. Major Weymouth led about a hundred of his regulars from the 63rd Regiment, along with about 40 dragoons that Tarleton had left behind. The men rode out of Winsboro on November 8th planning to attack Sumter's camp the following morning at dawn. Weymouth had received intelligence about Sumter's position and the numbers from a local Tory, who we only know as a man with the last name of Seely. Sumter had captured this man and then paroled him after he convinced Sumter that he really believed in the Patriot cause. Upon release, Seeley rushed to the British camp to give his intelligence. Seely rode with Major Weymouth as a guide but also had a special mission to take a five-man team that would capture or kill General Sumter during the attack. As the British patrol rode out on the night of November 8th, they received new intelligence that Sumter had relocated his camp about five miles to a place known as Fishdam Ford. At around 1 a.m. on the 9th, Weymouth stumbled across some of Sumter's pickets, who fired and knocked the Major off of his horse. The second-in-command, a young lieutenant named John Stark, ordered the regiment to charge into the enemy camp. The alert patriots had fled into the woods and began firing on the British, who made themselves targets by passing by the enemy campfires. The British withdrew after taking some casualties. Lieutenant Stark then ordered the men to dismount and led them in a bayonet charge. The patriots countered the charge, by returning a devastating volley at short range, creating even more British casualties. While the battle raged, Seely led his attack team to General Sumter's tent. Sumter, who had been asleep and was still not dressed, managed to slip out of the tent just ahead of the attack team. He ran into a briar patch and hid in a creek bed. The fighting ended rather quickly as Lieutenant Stark withdrew his men, The British suffered 4 dead and about 20 wounded. The Americans similarly suffered about 4 dead and 10 wounded. Among the 25 captured British soldiers was the wounded Major Weymouth. When taken, he had a paper that recorded the men he had hanged and the plantations he had burned. General Sumter, having returned to camp, interrogated Weymouth and found the document. He threw it into a campfire, knowing that his men would probably hang the Major if they saw it. As it was, Sumter later exchanged Weemus for a captured American officer. The defeat of the British regulars at Fishdam Ford only enhanced Sumter's reputation. It also caused Cornwallis to recall Colonel Tarleton from his fruitless attempts to capture Colonel Marion. Tarleton took direct command of the effort to defeat Sumter. After receiving his orders, Tarleton rode his legion back to the British camp in a hard three-day ride. Without stopping to rest... He collected more of his legion and rode out in pursuit of Sumter with about five hundred men on the same day that he rode into camp, following the victory at Fishdam Ford. Locals rushed to volunteer with Sumter, his rank swelled to about a thousand men, many of these were the over-mountain men who were veterans of the King's Mountain battle, despite having a larger force than Tarleton. Sumter was reluctant to fight. Tarleton had a reputation for defeating larger numbers of militia with his well-trained and ruthless legion. When a British deserter alerted Sumter about Tarleton's numbers and presence, Sumter called a council of war to decide how to respond. No one seemed eager to fight Tarleton, but retreating would likely mean that they would be run down by the enemy at some point and forced to fight anyway. Also, the Patriots did not want to cede the territory to the British the Council of War decided that they would find a good defensive position and fight Tarleton on ground of their choosing. Sumter chose an area on a plantation owned by Captain William Blackstock. Sumter left Captain Patrick Carr between the main American force and the enemy in order to provide some warning of attack. The British Legion under Tarleton lived up to its reputation of hard riding and sniffing out the enemy. When a scouting party under Tarleton encountered Carr's patriots, they immediately charged, causing the Americans to scatter and run. Five men remained and tried to surrender, but they were immediately cut down and killed by Carleton's men. Later they learned that the men trying to surrender had been Loyalists who had been captured by Carr and were abandoned when the British attacked, but they were killed by their own side before they could make that fact known. When Tarleton arrived at Blackstock's farm, he had only about 270 men from his legion with him. The rest were out on extended scouting patrols. Now, despite being outnumbered and with the enemy on favorable ground, Tarleton opted to attack. Tarleton ordered a young lieutenant named John Money to dismount 80 men from the 63rd Regiment and take out about 100 Georgia riflemen on the American left flank. General Sumter saw this move and ordered about 400 American reinforcements to support the Georgians. Despite being outnumbered by about six to one, the British advanced into the field. As frequently happened, the American militia lost their nerve. They fired a volley when the enemy was too far away to cause any real harm. The British then charged in with their bayonets, causing the Americans to run back up the hill, past the main farmhouse where Sumter had set up his command. As the British advanced toward the main building, South Carolina sharpshooters under Colonel Henry Hampton took their toll. About one third of the advancing regulars fell, including Lieutenant Money. Despite the fire, the regulars held their ground and returned fire. As all this was happening, General Sumter had ridden to the American right, where he ordered Colonel Edward Lacey to advance on Tarleton and the rest of the Legion, who were still mounted on high ground. As Tarleton watched Money's advance. As Tarleton began taking fire on his left and he saw Money's division being decimated on his right, he realized that he was in trouble. Still, Tarleton charged with his division across the field to support Money's regulars. Under fire, Tarleton dismounted, picked up the wounded lieutenant, and rode off the field with him. General Cornwallis was particularly close to Lieutenant Money and thought of him as a son. And despite Tarleton's efforts to save him, money died of his wounds shortly after the battle. As the British Legion withdrew, the apparent results were a lopsided American victory. The Americans lost three killed and four wounded, while the British lost 92 killed and 76 wounded, about two-thirds of those engaged. Some accounts put British losses even higher. One of the American wounded was General Sumter himself. The battle had raged for several hours before Sumter was the recipient of a British volley that hit him in the chest and shoulder. Despite his wound, Sumter remained mounted and continued to command forces still engaged in the battle. After the British withdrew, Sumter returned to the main house and called for a doctor. His blood loss had greatly weakened him to the point where he was barely conscious. The doctor performed battlefield surgery, removing the balls without any anesthetic. Meanwhile, Tarleton, despite his loss, withdrew only about two miles away and prepared for an attack the following day. He soon discovered, however, that the Americans had withdrawn. In his reports to Cornwallis, Tarleton tried to cover up the mistake he made by attacking a superior force on ground of their choosing by claiming that the Americans had attacked first and that he had had to defend himself. He also claimed to have taken only 50 casualties. Sumter, despite his injuries and the need to recuperate, called on General Gates to launch a final attack on Cornwallis at Winsboro. While both General Sumter and Tarleton's Legion were recovering from their wounds following the Battle of Blackstock in late November, Colonel Marion was still actively fighting. A lot of this fighting happened in December, and many of these incidents didn't really rise to the level of a battle but they still show the intense violence between the Tories and Patriots. Colonel Francis Marion noted that he had sent Lieutenant Roger Gordon and a few men on a scouting expedition. The party stopped at a local tavern along Lynch's Creek, where a larger group of Loyalists, under an officer named only as Captain Butler, attacked them. According to Marion's report, the Loyalists set fire to the tavern. Rather than be burned alive, the parties agreed to quarter. Exited the building and grounded their arms once disarmed. Butler's loyalists cut the patriots to pieces, killing all of them. The event became known as the Lynch's Creek Massacre and only fueled the burning hatreds between the two sides around the same time, the patriots discovered two brothers of a loyalist officer named Major John Harrison who were both sick and in bed with smallpox. The patriots murdered the two loyalists in their sick a Gordon scouting mission that had ended in his death had been to seek out the position of bands of Loyalists who were in the area. The Loyalists were trying to intercept Patriot supply trains along the Lynch's Creek. On December 4th, the day before General Green took command of the Southern Army, General Morgan deployed his cavalry under Colonel William Washington to take out a group of Loyalists who were working out of a local mill owned by a Loyalist Colonel Henry Rugley. Washington rode to the mill with 80 Continental Cavalrymen. It appears Washington's numbers were supplemented by several companies of local militia. Inside the mill, Colonel Rugley had 112 Loyalists. The Loyalists had fortified the mill to face the attack and dug a ditch to prevent the attackers from rushing the mill. The American cavalry opened fire on the mill while the Loyalists returned fire. Washington really needed a cannon to take the mill. and Since he didn't have one, he had his men cut down a pine tree and posed it to look like a cannon. Then, under a flag of truce, he informed the Loyalists that they could surrender or the American artillery would blow up the mill with them inside. Colonel Rugley agreed to surrender and his Loyalists were taken prisoner. Washington offered parole to the surrendering Loyalists and burned down the mill. The Patriots, of course, were not the only ones who knew how to bluff in order to win a battle. About a week later, Colonel Marion intercepted a group of Loyalist recruits marching to Camden who were trying to cross the Catawba River at a spot known as Halfway Swamp. The recruits were being taken by British Major Robert McLeareth and a detachment of regulars from the 64th Regiment. The American militia drove in the British pickets and began skirmishing with the main force, most of the Loyalist recruits were inexperienced and likely not even armed. Major McLearoth stalled for time, sending out a flag of truce. He complained that shooting at his pickets was contrary to the laws of war. Marion, of course, thought it was crazy that someone would argue that shooting at the enemy violated the laws of war. That pretty much was the point of war. Nevertheless, McLearoth then offered to settle the dispute with a duel of sorts. He suggested that each side choose twenty sharpshooters to fire at each other and settle the matter. The two sides discussed terms, such as distance from which the two sides would fire, and who would volunteer for the duel. Of course, McLearoth did not believe all the nonsense he was spouting. His complaints were designed to keep the Americans talking rather than attacking his force. As soon as he had become aware of the presence of Marion's advance guard, he had sent a messenger to a group of about 140 Loyalists on horseback who were nearby. As McLareth dragged out the discussions with the enemy, the Loyalist cavalry arrived. Marion's militia beat a hasty retreat. Marion, however, was not done. After Marion's men retreated, the cavalry once again left McLareth to march his men to Camden on their own. So Marion just set up another ambush down the road the following day. McLearoth, though, fearing another attack, set up camp for the night. He built up his campfires, made lots of noise, but sometime after midnight the British secretly abandoned their camp and baggage and slipped away. Marion then rushed some of his men on horseback to get in front of McLearoth's retreating party. Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Horry took his men to Singleton Hill, where they set up defenses to fire on the approaching British column. The Americans began to fire, but then immediately stopped and ran away. It turned out the Americans discovered that the home they were using to launch their attack was filled with a family recovering from smallpox. The Patriots did not want any part of that. McClureth finally did reach Camden with his recruits. However, rather than being praised for his clever ruse, Lord Walden criticized him for failure to engage with the Patriot militia and his failure to burn down plantations of patriots that he passed along the way. McClariff decided he had had enough of military life. He resigned his commission and left for Charleston. Omerian, of course, was one of only several partisan bands causing trouble for the British. Another British outpost near Fort 96 in western South Carolina, near the Georgia border, also had to remain on alert. On December 12th, About the same time that Marion and McLearoth were dueling at Halfway Swamp, Colonel Elijah Clark was causing problems for the British about a 100 miles to the west. Clark had been active in the fall, fighting at King's Mountain and at Blackstocks, but afterwards returned home to Georgia. By December, he was back out on the march with a combined force of about 500 Georgia and South Carolina militia. Although they were near the British outpost of Fort 96, Their goal at that point was just to recruit more militia to continue the fight. A Loyalist officer in the region, General Robert Cunningham, became aware of Clark's recruiting efforts and requested that Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger send a force from Fort 96 to disperse the rebels. Kruger deployed Loyalist Lieutenant Colonel Isaac Allen at the head of 200 battle-hardened New Jersey Loyalists and another 200 local Loyalist militia and about 50 Dragoons. As the Loyalist force set out after Clark, the Americans planned an ambush. Clark personally led an attack with about a 100 Patriot militia, forcing the Loyalists to retreat despite having a larger number. Once Allen realized the size of the smaller attacking force, though, he rallied his Loyalists and turned the battle back against the Patriots. The two sides clashed in a heated battle, during which Clark was badly wounded his men then retreated. During the battle and the Loyalist pursuit, the Americans lost 14 killed, 7 wounded, and 9 captured. The Loyalists took later casualties of only 2 killed and 9 wounded. The wounded Colonel Clark managed to escape, but it was feared that his wounds would prove mortal. He would survive, but the popular militia colonel would be out of commission and recuperating for the next three months. The skirmish did not end the fighting in the region, Two days later, on December 14th, Patriot Colonel Joseph Hayes clashed with Loyalist Major Moses Buffington. The small Loyalist detachment of about 25 men had occupied a plantation along Indian Creek. Hayes's Patriots attacked the defenders with about 50 men. In the skirmish, Buffington and three other Loyalists were wounded, and seven or eight of them captured. As I said, throughout the fall and early winter of 1780, There were dozens of these little clashes, perhaps even hundreds of them, between Patriots and Loyalists constantly jockeying for position and trying to harass the enemy. The real strategic goal here for the Patriots was to keep the British Southern Army occupied so that it could not think about invading the relatively undefended North Carolina and make its move up into Virginia. The Patriots were working on plans to rebuild the Southern Army after the loss at Camden, but had still not reached that goal. That would all change in early December, when a new general takes command of the Southern Army. And we'll discuss that next time, when General Nathaniel Green takes command of the Southern Army. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com/arp50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, and Michael Gaylord, and a special welcome to John Celentano, who just joined the Alexander Hamilton Club last month. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard, and 10crucialdays.org. I also want to thank Joanne Michalski and Donald Matner for one time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. I understand that many people prefer one time donations versus an ongoing subscription. And believe me, those donations definitely help with my podcast expenses. I don't have any firm plans for upcoming events, but I did want to mention that Liberty & Co. is opening a store in Old Town, Philadelphia, right by the Betsy Ross House. This is not a paid endorsement. Liberty & Co. has been a longtime supporter of this podcast, but I just wanted to mention on my own that you may want to check out their store, which should be open before Independence Day. They make great revolution-related items and gifts, and I hope the new venture goes well for them. Also, for those of you who want to be involved in more Zoom events, I wanted to bring to your attention HistoryAuthorTalks.com. Again, this is not a paid endorsement, although the guy who runs the talks, Roger Williams, is a longtime friend of the show and supports this podcast through 10CrucialDays.org. But History Author Talks has lots of great authors with new books, They can be from all different time periods, but a fair amount are from the American Revolution era. There are about two talks each month, and they're completely free. They are great live events, and I recommend them to anyone who is interested. Go to HistoryAuthorTalks.com and sign up for their mailing list. This week we went over some of the skirmishing that took place in South Carolina in late fall and early winter of 1780. For those of us with the benefit of hindsight, It's hard to remember that the outcome of the war was far from decided at this time, and that the men who refused to lay down their arms were really taking a great risk. Typically, when a rebellion has been crushed, as appeared to be the case after the capture of Charleston and the British victory at Camden, rebels might hope to cut their losses by seeking a pardon and living quietly. The fact that the militia continued to fight and keep the rebellion alive is a testament to the men who believe that liberty or death was more than just a slogan. Last week, I went to History Camp Valley Forge, which, by the way, was a great event with more than two dozen speakers and more than 150 participants, and I'm already looking forward to next year. I'll also mention that there will be a History Camp Boston in August, although I'm probably not going to make it to that one. But the reason I bring up History Camp is that I really enjoyed a talk there about a wartime record of Major James Jackson, who was the future governor of Georgia. Jackson was an active participant in much of the fighting that I've discussed over the last few episodes in the Carolinas, yet I didn't bother to mention him. He was a relatively low-level officer who did not rise above the rank of lieutenant colonel during the war. If I mention anyone in my episodes, it tends to be the commanding officer, or perhaps the second-in-command, But I think it's important to remember that there are hundreds, even thousands of other men, many of whom's names we don't even remember, who stood up and fought against the British tyranny. And unfortunately, no matter how many episodes I cram into this podcast, I'm never going to get to all of them. One reason I love History Camp is that you often hear these stories about people and events that are not covered in recitations of the big picture events. Anyway, these continuing skirmishes with people who don't remember were critical when considered together in convincing the British that these people would not be ruled. The battle at Blackstock's plantation, in particular, was a crucial battle in proving to Southerners that Bannister Tarleton was not invincible and could be defeated in battle, even if that fight came at the cost of putting General Sumter on the injured list for a few months. I also should mention that in some accounts, the British Lieutenant Money, who I mentioned received a mortal wound at Blackstock, is reported to be a major. So before I get your angry corrections emails on that point, I think what is the case here is that he had an informal commission as major in America while still holding the formal rank of lieutenant in the regular army. I also didn't have time in the main episode to mention the story of Blackstock's wife, who was demanding that the Americans get off her property before the battle and not wanting to have the war come to her home. Her husband, Captain Blackstock, was away with another militia company and was not present for the battle. Sumter's exact words to Mrs. Blackstock were not recorded, but essentially he told her that he was sorry and that the necessities of war made her plantation the location of the battle. Last week, I recommended a biography of Francis Marion, written by Robert Bass, so I figured I'd continue that trend this week by recommending Bass's biography of Thomas Sumter. The book is entitled Gamecock, The Life and Campaigns of General Thomas Sumter. I think it's a pretty good look at Sumter's entire life, including both his war years and his time as a political leader after the war book isn't too long, just over 250 pages, not counting notes and index. It was first published in 1961, but there are reprints available. You can also enjoy the book online through archive.org. Personally, even for books I want to buy, I love being able to take a quick look at the book online before I order it, just to find out whether it really is what I'm hoping to get. So if you want to read more about Thomas Sumter, the namesake of the probably more famous Fort Sumter, you'll want to read Gamecock, The Life and Campaigns of General Thomas Sumter. My online recommendation is a relatively short booklet called The Partisan War, The South Carolina Campaign of 1780-1782 to 1782 by Russell Wigley. It's a fairly short work, well under 100 pages, and it covers the fighting in South Carolina between the time the British took Charleston. Through the final major battle in the state at Utah Springs. The book was first published in 1970 and the author was a professor at Temple University. I think it's a great summary of this period for folks who don't want to dive into a longer book of several hundred pages on the topic. The book is available as an ebook online at archive.org. Again, the book is entitled The Partisan War The South Carolina Campaign of 1780 through 1782. As always, you can search for it on archive.org or find direct links to it on my blog and website. Go to www.amrevpodcast.com for a complete list of all my current and former book and online recommendations. My question this week asks Did the Americans pay their debts to France after the Revolution? Well, People who've been listening to my podcast know that France had lent a great deal of money to the American cause. However, when the Revolutionary War ended, the Confederation Congress had no way to repay those debts to France. It couldn't even repay its debts to its own soldiers. It ended up defaulting on promised interest payments in 1785 and 1787. Once the U.S. adopted the Constitution in 1789, It was able to start collecting revenue from tariffs and began making significant repayments in 1790. Of course, by that time, they were no longer making payments to the King of France. The King had been overthrown, and payments went to the new revolutionary government. Even with the new revenue under the Constitution, the U.S. still ran deficits. It ended up borrowing money from Dutch bankers and domestically from U.S. bankers to repay the French debt. So by 1795, all debts to France had been repaid, but the U.S. still owed the money. The debt was just held by private parties. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast.